Open your Bibles to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. Uh, we started two weeks ago our summer preaching series, and it was focused on, uh, on eldering, specifically what, what they are and what they look like. And we're doing that because at the end of the summer, we'll be placing two new elders before the, the church to affirm. That would be Rich Brown and, and Don Bowman. Both of those men have been sitting in our meetings for for quite some time, and they've been in training for the past year and a half, really, their whole lives. You have been observing them for a lot longer than, than that. And we're looking at Scripture's marks for, for an elder, and we're doing that so you'll, you'll know what to recognize in these men, not just that they're known and they're likable and all of those things, but, but what, what is the grid system that the Bible gives for, for someone who falls into that category? When you think about the anatomy of the church, I think that's a really good term. It wasn't original to me, but I think when you, you hear the term the anatomy of the church, it, it gives us a good concept for the biblical model that, that God has designed. And the Lord has designed His church, and, and He tells us how He intends for it to operate. Jesus promised to build His church. And I think there's a natural tendency when we hear that promise in Matthew 16, I will build my church to just think evangelism, think Jesus is going to add people to his church, and clearly he does that. But it goes much farther than that. The promise to build his church involves gifting the church with evangelists and elders, in fact, all of the spiritual gifts that the Spirit of God gives to the church because part of the church is not only adding to it, but building it up in the most holy faith. And then the Lord mediates His rule through the, these elders that, that He has given to oversee and feed and shepherd the flock. The only authority that they have is Scripture. So if you summarize all the passages in the New Testament that talk about the church's anatomy, I think you really get three main features. They're the visible leaders called elders or overseers or pastors, the bishops, if you have King James, those words are used interchangeably. The exemplary servers or the model servants, those are better known as deacons, and then the maturing ministers, that's you, which is the, the congregation, and really all three parts of these, are the, number one and number two, the, the leaders and the servers are part of the, of the congregation, and Christ uses each part to build His church. The, the statement that you have heard Probably ad nauseum that I've said is the church is elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally affirmed. You saw that play out even in, even in the budget. This church sets apart leaders, and those leaders lead, and then there also sets apart servants who do all the legwork and gather numbers and those type of things, and, and then that information is then presented to the church to, to affirm or, or to not affirm. These men aren't perfect, but they're set apart by you to do specific tasks. Well, tonight we're looking at the church's visible leaders, which are the, the elders. And in particular, what do elders look like? Next we'll, we'll see what do they do, but we're still in the category of what they look like. Last week we, we talked about the fact that they were, were men and took an entire sermon to deal with that because, uh, you know, since the garden that's been, a, that's been a, a, an issue. Um, this topic is important not only because it's a major doctrine in the Bible, but it's vital that you, as a Christian, understand what a, what a biblical leader looks like because there's a lot passed off as biblical ministry that's really nothing more than superficial marketing. I used to be a lot... Do I want to use the word kinder? I, I used to, used to, to give a, a much broader... Um, uh, grace toward, uh, toward churches in evangelicalism. Um, I have to tell you, the, the longer that I study the Bible and the more I see the fruit that comes from them, the, the, the less kind I, I get, or maybe the more direct I get about, quite frankly, there's a lot of churches that, that really just need to go away. There's a lot of junk out, out there. And frankly, there are many unqualified people presenting themselves as shepherds of, of God's people. So it's not surprising that, that the church is confused about, about what, how it's supposed to be structured and who's supposed to, to, to lead it. I mean, 
It's important that you know what type of man God sets apart for you to, to listen to and to follow, and on the flip side, who not to follow. Um, it's also important that you know what to expect biblically out of your elders here at, uh, at Timberlake. So in Titus chapter 1, we're, we're seeing this portrait that, that unfolds. Now before we get to verse 5, where we left off last time, uh, verse 6 actually, I, w- I want to say two things to you. First of all, don't listen to these messages about elders and think that elders are somehow some special class of Christians. There's not clergy and, and laity. They're, they're not a super group of ecclesiastical giraffes, as B.R. Lakin said one time. You should not think of pastors or elders like the Old Testament priesthood. Alexander Strock rightly warns about this. He says elders and deacons are not appointed to a special priestly office or holy clerical order. Instead, they are assuming offices of leadership or service among God's people or part of the church. We should be careful not to sacralize these positions more than the writers of Scripture do. He goes on to say, the New Testament never shrouds the installation of elders in mystery or sacred ritual. There's no holy rite to perform or special ceremony to observe. The appointment to eldership is not a holy sacrament. Appointment confers no special grace or empowerment, nor does one become a priest, a cleric, or a holy man at the moment of installation. Elders are no different than any other members beyond what the the Bible describes. I am called, and other elders are called, to know the Bible well in order to teach you the Bible and then to refute error or those who who twist it. So they're not a special class. Secondly, these characteristics, and this probably hits home more, that we're going to go over, are commanded to be in every believer's life. Um... They just must be observable in a person before they're considered for the office of of, of an elder. You should pursue all of these characteristics that that we're we're examining. If you're a man, you should be a one-woman man. Or if you're a woman, a one-man woman. You you should be self-controlled, not self-willed. You should be hospitable and not a brawler and all the other things on the list. And so as you listen, don't hear what the church leaders ought to be and do. Think, what should I be? What should I be? Am I these things? Do I need to cultivate these things in in my life? And and if you find that there's some area lacking, then you need to pursue these marks um, all all the, the harder. So last week we said that there were seven definite descriptions of elders in the church. God doesn't leave us guessing about who these men are, and the Bible shows us how to recognize them. There are seven of them. Number one, he's required to be a man. That's what we covered last time. Number two, he must have an unchargeable testimony. We'll look at that tonight. He must have time and training, according to 1 Timothy 3. He's required to be faithful at home, also verse 6 in Titus. He must have a specific character. That's verse 7 and 8, and then there's an overlap in 1 Timothy 3. He must pursue the ability. That's in 1 Timothy 3. And he also must have a particular commitment, a very particular commitment. That's in verse 7. So those are the the definitive descriptions. And we said last time that an elder is required to be a man, according to the Bible. We saw that in Scriptural's portrayal of an elder, the prohibition in 2 Timothy 2 about women not being in an official teaching position of the church or ruling and then also that Scripture is congruent. You, you see this from the Garden all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is practiced. And while gender is not something that anyone can alter, contrary to the nonsense in the world, there are six characteristics that can be altered. These other six can be developed. And these are things that relate to a leader's life and his inner heart. So the Bible also says, besides being a man, that he must have an unchargeable testimony. 
an elder in the church must have an unchargeable testimony, and that is in his inner testimony of his personal character, and his outward testimony, that's to the people in the community. If you would, at Titus chapter 1, verse 6. It says, namely, if any man is above reproach, it's the first on the, the list here. So Paul has told Titus, I'm sending you to Crete to practice some spiritual orthodontics. You are to set in order the church and what was lacking was it lacked elders, plural. And so he was to recognize and appoint elders in every congregation. And then Paul gives a list of what he's supposed to look for in those men that are placed before the church them to, to recognize. And he begins here with saying a man must be above reproach. 1 Timothy 3 says it this way, an overseer must be blameless. And scripture applies that mandate in Titus and 1 Timothy both to his private and his public life. And so Paul begins here because this is the overarching principle. If you go to 1 Timothy or Titus, this is at the headwaters because all of the other characteristics flow out of this, this idea of being above reproach or, or being blameless. The husband of one wife, not a lover of money, hospitable, etc., all come from this, this overarching characteristics. And there are two different words between Titus and Timothy that mean similar things. 1 Timothy 3 applies to his testimony. An elder cannot be laid hold of by legitimate accusation. That's what the word blameless means. Something can't lay hold of his character and keep its hooks there. And then Titus here, this word applies to his inner life. He's to be free from reproach in his, in his character. He's to be above reproach. So a man who is an elder in the church must not be able to be called into account and held by a legitimate accusation. It, it implies not merely acquittal if a charge comes, but, but the absence of a charge against his character. His character is free from anything that would stick. His character is like a non-stick skillet. There, there may be egg around him and there may be some egg that gets on him, but it won't stay there long. There'll, there'll, be, there'll be nothing that will, that will stick and hold. It'll just slide right, right off. And I mean, when you think about it, this principle is not hard to, to understand, is it? I mean, you've seen all the scandals play out and how, they, how harmful they are to God's people and as well as the reproach that it brings in the unbelieving world. I mean, no one is immune from temptation, including elders, but, but many actually fall because this standard was ignored to begin with. Um, they had issues before they were ever selected. It doesn't mean that accusations won't come because 1 Timothy 5 clearly tells us that they will. But, but this verse is after elders are already leading. Look at 1 Timothy 5, 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So these men are already elders. And then it says those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of, of sinning. So this, this passage gives us an explicit command not to can even consider an accusation unless it's corroborated. But if it is, and the leaders are guilty, then they're to be rebuked publicly. So there's a higher level of accountability there, higher level of protection as well. Because false accusations come, because Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he clearly places the target on God's spokesman. These accusations can be things like the, uh, the leaders have wicked motives or they twist the Bible in favor of, of, of money. If that's not corroborated, you're not to entertain those things. And it doesn't even have to be overt. It can go something like this. Now, I know Pastor Brian, is a, I know he's a good man, and personally I don't think this is true, but I'm not sure he really cares about the nursery workers or missionaries. I mean, I haven't noticed him mention them very much from the pulpit, and it can sound something like that. It doesn't even have to be, you know, wow, I, I saw him do this or I saw him do that. There's an accusation in there 
And if you take the, abate, uh, the bait and agree with that, then, then you can have roast pastor for, for lunch. And you've got to be careful there because there's passages about bearing false witness. And 1 Timothy tells you not to even entertain something unless it is substantiated. And even then, you're to, you're to bring it to the other elders, not to a, somebody else who can spread it around so the person can be confronted. But the point of Titus 1.6 here is an elder's life should, should contradict any accusation, not corroborate it. Again, it doesn't mean sinless perfection or that they'll not commit sins, but it means the shepherds of Christ's church must have no sinful defect in their lives which could justly call their virtue, their righteousness, or their godliness into question and indict them. This is a present and ongoing requirement, meaning that if any time this reality changes, then they've disqualified themselves and could be subject to discipline, just like Timothy says, says here. So God establishes this requirement because the elders of the church are examples to, to follow, not because they're super-Christians, but just like deacons are model servants, elders are also models. 1 Timothy 4 11 says, Prescribe and teach these things in speech, in conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example to those who believe. So elders are up front and they're out front. Their lives are, are teaching models. You remember how the Apostle Paul did this with, with Timothy and with himself in Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. He taught them doctrine and then he used an example as a model of that. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.16, who's adequate for these things? I mean, frankly, the thought that my life, or I'm sure any of the other men would say the same thing, is a model that somebody is following, it just makes me shudder. But 2 Corinthians 15 says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death and to another an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? That applies to you too. Your life is a model to the unbelieving world. And Paul gives an, the answer in the very next verse. Who is adequate for these things? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, but to to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. But I think one of the most encouraging passages to, to me in, in light of these standards for an elder is, is found in 1 Timothy 4, verses 15 and 16. Now pay attention to what it says here. Paul tells Timothy, practice these things. Everything that he's telling them, that you're supposed to be as an elder. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching, your doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will both save yourself and your hearers. So Paul told Timothy he wasn't above the congregation, but he was among them, and that his progress was to be visible to those people that he served. He was to give himself entirely to the work of the ministry. He was to practice and immerse himself in it. And he was to do that so his improvement would be evident before everybody. Do you know what this means? It means that Timothy had not arrived yet and no elder has. Elders are not holy men to marvel at. They're human examples to observe where we see God's power overcoming the flesh. That's the model. And when you put these standards in Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3, with this passage, there should be enough character, enough character qualities in, the, in an elder's life or in a person's life to set them apart for the work of eldering. There should be enough to model, but there will be enough frailty in that same person to make them a model for others to follow in sanctification. That's the inner testimony. There's also an outward testimony to people in the community. 1 Timothy 3, 7 says this. He must have a good reputation 
with those outside the church so that he'll not fall into reproach and snare of the devil. Titus doesn't have a uh, statement like that in, in these earlier verses. But he must have, an elder must have a good reputation for those outside of the church. I mean, you know the common excuse that everybody makes for why they won't come to Christ. I'm a good person and the church is full of hypocrites. No, you're not. And the fact that you say that you are makes you hypocritical. But the disdain that people have toward Christ, toward God, toward authority, represented by the men that stand in pulpits and proclaim it, the disdain is doubled if there actually is hypocrisy in church leadership. Elders must not have a life that makes the charge of hypocrisy stick. People don't have to like the truth that you preach, but they must not have a reason to dismiss it because of a moral flaw in your life. Elders will be slandered and accused inside and outside the church unjustly, but that's exactly the point. It, it should be just that, unjustly. And because of that, they should have time and, and training. Time and training. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. Similar list. It's for the qualifications of those who will be an elder or overseeing the church. But Paul gives Timothy one here that, that I want you to see. Verse 6. And he's not to be a new convert so that he will become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by, by the devil. And here's that verse that we just looked at. And he must have a good reputation for those outside of the church so that he'll not fall into reproach and snare of the, the devil as, as well. 1 Timothy 5.22 warns you as a congregation and other elders, don't lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for their, their sins, the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. The, the King James translates this word here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, a novice. But it's literally a newly planted tree or newly planted leaf. It's a, it's a new convert. So the New American Standard gets it right. It just simply means that elders of a church must be mature. When I came to Timberlake, I can remember I was 35 years old, which is a scary thought. And I was asked about my age, and rightly so. It was a very legitimate question. However, the person used this passage, used the, the, the word novice, and, and said because T T TBC was much larger than the church that I came from, they, they wanted to know if I could rightly handle the the inner workings of such a, a large church, and they quoted this, this verse. It was a proper question. It's a very legitimate question. Can you handle all of the things that are there? But it was the wrong scripture to use and, and application because a man who doesn't meet this qualification wouldn't be qualified to, as an elder, period, regardless of the size of the church. You can't be a new convert. You must be mature before you're considered for the position of, of eldership. Paul's not talking about leadership acumen here, but he's talking about one's advancement in lordship. How under the lordship of Christ is this man? And so sufficient time must have passed from when a person comes to Christ and when they're set apart to lead others. And that's so that spiritual maturity can be developed. A younger man can qualify, like Timothy, if his life evidences godliness. And quite frankly, an older man could be disqualified if he's whittled away his time and never grown in the Lord. But to say it simply, a man who leads God's church must be tested over time and found faithful. In fact, all of these requirements that are listed here require time to develop and time for the congregation to examine them, to see them in a person's life. There are no microwave elders. You can't go to seminary for three years and they pump you full of a bunch of information, give you a piece of paper and say, voila, you're qualified, go lead God's flock. 
That's crazy and scary and quite frankly unbiblical if you look at this passage correctly. How dangerous and deadly it is to place someone unprepared and untempered in, in leadership. I can remember a call one time from a public committee asking if I would consider applying for their senior pastor position, and they said the reason that they wanted me was because I was young and full of energy and the church was full of old people. That's literally what they said. Now, just as a point of marketing, that's probably not the best way to sell it to a young person. And of course I said no, not because of the old people, but because they had a horrible understanding of what a pastor was. Can you imagine pastoring that place? Well, 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Don't lay hands on anyone too, too hastily. I mean, don't ordain them too fast. It even says deacons are first to be tested, and God tells us why this time and training are, are important. There's the new convert passage. There's the laying hands too hastily, and, and here's why. Look at 1 Timothy 3.6. It gives the reason right there in the verse. It says so they won't become proud over being elevated, set up front, set apart as a, as a model, and then fall into reproach, into the condemnation incurred by the, by the devil, reproach doctrinally and morally. You go after the same path. Satan had an elevated position, but because of his pride, he fell. And 1 Timothy 5.22 says that these are sins. When you do this, a person can sin, and you share in those sins if you set them apart too, too fast. And I understand you may not need to be able to, to dissect a passage and determine a thorny nuance as a congregation member, but an elder should be able to do that. You may not care about the, the errors of egalitarianism and be able to lay out all of that stuff that we talked about last time, and no church history, or, or you may not be able to show which comes first, uh, you know, election or faith, but it's an elder's job to do that. An elder better be able to know that. They must be able to teach the truth. They must be able to correct the error. And that takes time. It's not for an immature and untrained man. They... They receive this maturing under other godly elders, which is what 2 Timothy 2, 2 is all about. And men who are already tested, and then they stay under those men until they, they learn. But one of the primary testing grounds for this growth is not in a seminary. It's actually in the home. So number four, an elder is required to be a man who's faithful at home. And Titus in 1 Timothy talks about his household, his children, and his, his marriage. Turn back to Titus chapter 1 and verse 6 again. It says, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the headwater uh, characteristic. And then he says, The husband of one wife, having his children who believe, not accused of dissipation or, or rebellion. The parallel verse in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 says a similar requirement. 1 Timothy 3, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the, the church of, of, of God? I've read some pretty scary applications of this from church history, um, like in the time of Jonathan Edwards or or Susanna Wesley, where the wife and the children actually sat up front facing the congregation while, while preaching took place as an example to the congregation. Thankfully, we don't do, that, don't do that here. Now, notice, though, that this doesn't say he's required to control the outcome of his household or his children's spiritual walk. Nobody can do that. We have good soteriology. You know that you cannot force salvation on, on anyone. But he must be able to manage the journey well. That's what it means here. Having his children who believe not accused, or he must be able to manage his own household well. The focus is on the skill in managing, not the outcome. You cannot control the outcome, but you can control the skill in managing. 
The word means to preside or rule over, and, and to do that well means inherently good or excellent. An elder's home should reflect his observable ability to shepherd or not. And that's where the development comes in. How he helps his wife grow, how he guides his children, how he manages his time are all indications of this quality. He must preside over his family in a way that the children under his roof and his home life are faithful pictures of his influence. Even these words here that talk about not accused of dissipation or rebellion are talking about the children that, that are under his specific control in, in his home. They're, they're not to be wild. He can influence that. Um, and so Paul starts with the word household here, which is all in company, uh, encompassing, but then he applies it to children. So let me give you three implications of this, of this requirement. Sorry, there's the First Timothy 3 passage that I, I mentioned to you. His children are lined up under his authority. His family is not to be known as a contradiction of what he preaches, and his marriage must be intact and excellent. I think those are three implications of these, both of these passages here. His children are to be lined up under his authority. Uh, they are to be underranked, which is the idea of the, uh, of the word. They're to be in subjection to him, not out of abject fear, but a little fear helps, I'll have to tell you but out of his wise leadership in particular. Um, and again, these are children that are, that are in his home. Children are to be discipled. They're not to be dissipates. And Titus explains that by saying they're not to be rebellious. Timothy says that, that they are to conduct themselves with dignity. Everyone has heard about the problem, PK... And sadly, some homes and churches place unrealistic ideals on, a, on an elder's family, as if the children should be automatic Bible scholars just because they grow up in, a, in an elder's home. And I'm thankful that you have never done that here as a, as a congregation. Unbelieving children don't disqualify an elder because you can't control that. But lack of shepherding can to the extent that they reflect his own character, it can be disqualifying. I mean, it's kind of like what happens when your three-year-old throws a temper tantrum in the mall. You can't control whether that three-year-old throws the temper tantrum, but you can control what happens next, right? And I can tell you what happened next in my house. The parents think everyone is looking at them when the three-year-old's throwing the temper tantrum, but all of the eyes are actually on the parents. How are you going to respond to this little rebellious monster who's challenging you right now. Elders should be men who have learned how to, to do that. Well, here's the second implication. His family is not to be known as a contradiction of what he preaches. So an elder's household will not be more spiritual than yours. It's not like when you come over to my house or Jeff's or Larry's or anybody else's that you walk in and... I'll, and the minute that you walk in, you know, be thou my vision is hum, being hummed by all the family in the background. And, and uh, I wear a tie there and all of those, those kinds of things. But you should sense the fra fragrance of the gospel. It's evident there. It should be hospitable. It should be kind. It should be open. An elder's home will reveal if he truly loves Christ. And, and if he does, then he will love his, his wife and he'll love his children. This is the idea of hypocrisy in the home. They, they must not pretend to be one thing at church and, and, and another thing at home. And I understand there's, there's, you know, there's the public and there's the private. Okay, you dressed up, you, you, know, you combed your hair... There's nothing wrong with, with presenting yourself publicly. You, you look different in, publicly than in public than on a Saturday morning when you, you just got out of bed and you're hanging out with your family. That's not what he's talking about here. It's to actually pretend that you're something at church and then be something completely different around other people in your, in your home. And that will send children and probably a wife 
in the opposite direction of, of Christ. The final one, his marriage must be intact and excellent. I think this is an implication of what Paul says here. Both Timothy and Titus use similar phrases, or Paul does, to, to those two men. He's to be the husband of one wife, or better, a one-woman man. Now, the Bible's focus here is on an elder's character, not his marital status. Although it could be a clear indication, his marital status, or lack thereof, could be a clear indication that he's violated this requirement, but I don't think that's, that's what Paul's leading with here. There are three primary interpretations of this phrase. He must be a husband of one wife. It, it means he, he can't have uh, more than one wife at a time, like polygamy. Well, that seems to be ruled out elsewhere. I mean, that would seem to be obvious. Polygamy was practiced in the Old Testament as a worldly custom, but not by God's design or desire. I guess it could, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. The second uh, interpretation is this means that he can't be divorced, and therefore he can't have more than one wife. And I mean, but if that's the intent, then a, a widower or a single man wouldn't be qualified, which would, would seem odd. And then what do you do about people who were divorced prior to coming to Christ, and now they're a new creation in Christ Jesus? Uh, so somebody who is um, a murderer before Christ and is now being made a, a new creation, somebody who stole, somebody whose life was completely bankrupt, is, is not qualified you know, outright for the rest of their life, even if they develop the characteristic of a one-woman man, but, uh, but somebody who's divorced is. That doesn't seem to make sense. The third, which I think is, is the right one, is, is it means a man must be faithful in his marriage and that only one woman has his affections, which is a reflection of his character. There is only one woman that has my affections, and that's Tracy. And if you just think about the purpose of these qualifications, I think the meaning is very plain. This is a character quality. Of course, divorce can be a reflection of character. And if it is, then the man would be disqualified by the first in the list. There's some, there's some accusation that could be there. He, he doesn't lead his house well, or there's some, some issue that, that's, that's in his heart. Could manage divorce could be chargeable for his part in a failed marriage, but I don't think when Paul was putting together the list for Titus or Timothy, he has marital status in mind with this word. He, he's just saying that, that an elder's purity and his fidelity to his wife is one of the qualities that he must have because he must have the same fidelity for Christ in his church. I mean, think about it. A man who is unfaithful to his wife or has roving eyes will not be faithful to Christ's wife or have a single focus toward her. And the way these things manifest themselves in the home actually come from his heart. So that's the fifth qualification. He's required to be a man with specific character. Look at verse 7 of Titus. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sword gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Now, God moves from the environments that will evidence his character, his marriage and his home, to defining the character itself in this rapid-fire list of spiritual traits. And he says he's not to be self-willed. He must not be a man who refuses to, to listen. Donald Trump might be great for politics and necessary, for the politics we live in, but you would not want that man as your pastor. It would probably apply to our current uh, president as well, someone who has no will, but that's a whole other topic, isn't it? I'm going to get in trouble, sorry. <laughs> not quick-tempered. An elder must not be a man with a short fuse. He must not be inclined to anger. You don't want that type of person as, as an elder. Must, must not be fond of wine. Must keep himself free from the control of any substance. He must not be quarrelsome 
Literally, no one who strikes, not a fighter who is given to blows, not contentious, a person who is always argumentative, an elder should be patient when wrong. He's not greedy of shameful gain. He does not adapt his teaching to his hearers or for influence or gain. He's not a lover of money, meaning someone not driven by greed. He's gentle. He's considerate, forbearing. He doesn't hold a grudge. He's devout and just. One who is focused on God's pursuit, not his own. He's self-controlled. He has self-mastery over his passions and impulses that keeps him faithful to the will of God. He must be sober and temperate to one who refrains from anything in pleasure or passion that clouds his pursuits or focus on God's task. Well-disciplined. He knows how to correctly order his priorities in light of God's mission. He's, he's also to be orderly, the opposite of chaos. It doesn't mean a neat freak. It just means he is a well-disciplined mind that produces stability in his life. Then a lover of good and hospitable. Love of strangers. All of these characteristics are in step with his desires. That gives you number six. He's required to pursue the ability. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, says, If any man desires the office of a bishop or office of an overseer, it's a good work that he, that he desires. So a person's character is a mere image of their desires. Uh, your pursuits... And your desires are lived out. Your life portrays what's important to you. We, we do what we want to do. And as a church leader, desires and pursues serving God's people well. There are two different words that are, that are used here. It says if a man aspires, it's a good work that he desires. So the, the first is an external. If a man is reaching for this position as an elder, it's to reach out, to pursue. It's a good work that he desires inwardly. It's, a, it's, a, it's internal. It means to be inclined or, or willing. I mean, you put them together, it, it means an elder desires something that will, will lead him to pursue the abilities that he needs in order to do it well. Now, I was taught that this meant that you, you must have the, the can't help it, as it was called. It, it meant that you want to preach so bad that you don't want to do anything else. Everyone preparing for ordination knew that the answer that they were supposed to give, they were obligated to give, whenever they were asked the exact same question. So after you go through the examination the person that was leading the ordination council said, and what if this council will not ordain you? What will you do? And you were supposed to say, I will preach anyway because God's put a fire in my heart. It was just kind of the way that the, the dance went. And that's a really good amen line, but it's, it's really bad Bible interpretation because surely someone God calls will have a desire to obey that calling, but the focus of 1 Timothy 3 is a man will, will pursue and develop what qualifies him to be an elder and what will make him a good one, but, but being arrogant and rejecting the authority of older men, especially the ones that are ordaining you or sitting on a council, is, is actually show, showing that you're not qualified, not the other way around. So a man seeking to be an elder will take pains to cultivate these marks of faithfulness in his life. He'll pursue the ability to teach. He'll have the desire to do both. That's what this passage means. And this inward desire and outward pursuit continues even after he is recognized as one of God's leaders in the church. And here's the final Qualification. He's required to have a singular commitment. He must be committed to the master's task and he must be committed to the, the master's word. If you would at verse 7 of Titus. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. 
Notice the words, as God's steward. An elder is a steward of God. He must be a faithful manager of God's flock and not see himself as the owner. And he must carefully attend to his master's tasks. In biblical times, a steward was usually a slave who had, given, who had been given responsibility for property that was not his own. And so because of that, it wasn't his own property. His single focus was his owner's agenda. You can see that in the, the parables and the illustrations that Jesus uses. The, the master goes in a far country, he leaves his servants in, in charge, and then he comes back and they give an account. Church leaders must not see the church as their kingdom or their platform. They must know it's not their church, it's the master's. The tasks are not theirs to choose, but the master's to obey. The, the sheep are not theirs to direct, but the, pa- the master's to tend. John Knox said, The end I propose in all my preaching is to instruct the ignorant, to confirm the weak, to comfort the consciences of those humbled under their sense of their sins, and to bear down with the threatening of God's judgment to the proud and rebellious, laboring with all His power to gain them all to Christ. And the words that I speak are not my own opinions or ideas, but the Master's words, except whenever my flesh or my mouth gets the better of me, like my comment earlier of Joe Biden, and I ask your forgiveness for doing that. This is why an elder must be committed to the Bible. If you would at verse 9 of Titus, he says he must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he may will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Elders of the church are those who handle the, the word of God. So there has to be a commitment to the master's tasks. The church is not his. There also must be a commitment to the master's word. The men who are set apart by the church that handle the Word of God, they must be men who are unshakably committed to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, and there is absolutely zero exception here. And you will find, if, if they are, you'll find out uh, by their dedication to diligent study whether it's just something that they say or something that they actually believe. I mean, every time I preach, I invite my commitment to the Bible's authority to be scrutinized, and I put my hermeneutics on display. And the man who says he believes in the authority of the Bible and then preaches his own thoughts and doesn't take pains to explain God's is not committed to biblical authority. Or if he is, he's very confusing to people. Pastors who tell you that the Bible matters for your life and then don't, don't study it and don't explain it are a contradiction of terms. I mean, we're frail and we can get things wrong. But if we do, it should be in spite of our careful study, not because we have failed to do it. We don't dedicate ourselves to training men in the expositor seminary because it, it doesn't matter. We, we do it because the qualification for the work requires faithful mentoring inaccurate handling of the Bible. I mean, how will you know an elder when you see one? Who, who does God call the church to, to follow? Well, it'll be a man, person who will meet these seven requirements, and they'll be progressing in them. And whenever they get outside of them, they'll quickly return. They might not be in final form, but if you stand back and you look at their life, You'll see the characteristics rising up above everything else like a mountain range. And I think our prayer is may God give this church many elders that match these markers and keep the elders that we have faithful. Let me close this way. When I started, I told you that these are things that should be in every believer's life. 
they just have to be recognizable in, in an elder's life. So as you are listening today, is there something that God put His finger on? As you look at that list, is there something that, that in your heart you thought, wow, I, I'm really not, not there? Maybe it was about your wife. Maybe it was about your children. Maybe it was about your, your commitment to the Word or, or otherwise. Are you faithful in these things? Are you committed to the Master's Word? If there's anything there, why don't you ask Him to make you faithful in, in that specific area? And then tomorrow, go to the Bible and look at some specific passages that tell you how to, to develop it. Don't you bow your heads. As we pray, let's ask the Lord to to work these things in our heart. Father, as I come before you tonight and I look into this mirror personally, um, I am very thankful for 1 Timothy 4, that your progress can be evident. I'm very thankful, Lord, that I am a, I'm not a perfect model, but a, but a model of sanctification, even conviction and, and otherwise. I am thankful that you convict me of my sin. Um, even tonight, Lord, my mind wouldn't, wouldn't come off of the idea that my, my tongue became loose and was distracted, convicted. And I'm thankful for a church that, that I can even say that to and, and then confess it before you. I'm thankful also for the forgiveness of of omissions and commissions and transgressions and iniquity. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you are not done with us and you continue to cultivate these things in our lives. And I pray that every member of Timberlake would strive after these things. And I pray that you would preserve the, the pastors, the elders here. You would keep them holy and pure and committed to these things. And I pray these two men that we're setting before you, they would would continue to grow in these areas, and that you would keep us faithful for a long time, that we would be used much for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.